Well, welcome back to Decarb Connects podcast. And this week we have a kind of a bit of a shift in our discussion pattern because throughout December we were mostly talking about innovation and disruption. And although this conversation about carbon capture is definitely going to feed off that, it's a very it's a different tone, different perspective. And I'm very happy to be joined by Craig Golinowski, who is the president and managing partner of Carbon Infrastructure Partners. And before we hit record, we were just talking about the fact that he's based up in Calgary, but uh, Carbon Infra has uh, offices in the States as well. So what I'll actually do is, is hand over to Craig. You'll give us a bit of an introduction about you and about really how it is that you've come to work in this space around carbon capture. Um, and obviously we're then gonna crack on into our conversation about whether carbon capture is the radical middle ground in the energy transition, which is kind of a provocative statement, I think for many people. So it'll be an interesting conversation to have, but kick us off with, you know, how have you arrived at this point in time, Craig? Wonderful. Well, thank you, Alex. And I, you know, uh, this is a great opportunity to, to be with you on this. Um, so my background is uh, I've been in an oil and gas, you know, investment banker, private equity fund manager my, my whole career. And a couple of years ago, I had an opportunity to move to California. Uh, my wife was going to school at Stanford and I started hanging around the carbon management department at Stanford, which is part of geology and earth sciences. And uh, I attended a, a seminar where um, basically that's the first time I'd really heard, you know, 40 billion tons a year, which is more or less the amount of CO2 that we're putting up into the atmosphere. And I, it sort of struck me in that moment that, you know, that's an enormous quantity of CO2. Um, and, you know, the next thought was like, well, what are we actually going to do about this? Uh, because as an energy professional, um, it's, it's, you know, it, the, the problem is, is a vast one in that, you know, energy touches all aspects of our lives from fertilizer production, steel, cement, you know, transportation, heat, all, all these things that are actually really um, uh, very difficult to change uh, because of thermodynamics and just the, the basic engineering and, and sort of laws of physics. And so it, I, I just, at that moment in time, I was like, you know, we need to be a part of this. We need to make a contribution uh, as energy professionals to this problem. And so that's where I just, it, it, it dawned on me that I'll probably spend the rest of my career working on this problem. And so that's how I arrived at it. So then um, what, we, what we did is we rebranded our firm uh, to Carbon Infrastructure Partners, and we created a, a private equity fund uh, product uh, with our, our law firm Kirkland & Ellis in, in the United States. That is a, a, an investment product that's designed uh, to back companies and projects uh, that are enabled by carbon capture and storage uh, in, the, in the United States and Canada. So we're taking our skills as, as energy investors, as private equity investors to directly um, you know, back companies and projects that are going to take CO2 that otherwise would have been emitted in the atmosphere, put it into the ground, uh, or in other cases, uh, creating a negative emissions profile um, and, and putting that CO2 into the ground. And so that's, that's how we've uh, sort of come to this. And I think, uh, we're, you know, the industry, we, we, which we can talk about the economic drivers for it, but carbon capture and storage in North America is really entering into a liftoff uh, phase. And uh, it's a very exciting time to see this industry uh, become a, a real commercial opportunity. Mm. Well, it's definitely one of the tools, one of the technologies, one of the platforms, however you look at it, that also gets the most, uh, yeah, challenge, most bad press. I know that um, when you and I were talking about um, some of the, the kind of companies you invest in, but also your perspective on it, you, you talked about this idea of carbon paradox. People listening will have their own views. It's not our, not my job to kind of tell people they're right or wrong. I just want to present these different perspectives around this issue. So talk to me about your perspective on this and this concept of the carbon paradox, which I, I thought was really interesting. 
Yeah, well, that's you know that's great. So you know, starting from you know primary energy, so oil, gas, coal, nuclear, hydro, wind, and solar. Those are our choices for primary energy. Uh, electricity is not energy; it's just an energy carrier. You know, uh, hydrogen is not energy; it's a, it's an energy carrier. So those are our choices. And today, human beings, we use 85 percent of primary energy is coal, oil, and natural gas. And so that's that's the, that's sort of the starting point today. And, and when you sort of plot out um, energy uh, choices, uh, you can sort of imagine a triangle in your mind and, and put affordability, carbon emissions, and reliability on the three points of that triangle. And each of our energy choices are trade-offs and we're bound on that triangle. So for example, solar panels, very good at affordability, very good on carbon, not reliable. You know, there's night, there's clouds, and so if you wanted to improve the reliability by adding batteries, now we added carbon emissions because we've got to make the batteries. Uh, the batteries are expensive, so we've uh, uh, challenged the affordability side, and we may have added four or six hours of reliability. So while those uh, points may come closer together uh, with technology solutions, uh, it's actually really challenging to solve uh, all three of those simultaneously. And so one of the phenomena that you know, we have I've observed and the data would support it is that where there's gaps in reliability. So in other words, there's a difference in the supply and demand for energy in a particular moment in time. There's something that I've called the carbon paradox, which is that those gaps in supply and demand are met with the highest carbon intensity energy sources. So what do I mean by that? So what's happening today in Europe uh, is there's a gap in supply and demand for electricity. And so coal plants are having to be fired back up and uh, liquid fuels like uh, fuel oil generators, those are being fired back up in Sweden. Uh, those are also being fired back up in Japan. Uh, so, so we could have had you know, a more reliable natural gas uh, you know, based approach, but, but we don't have enough natural gas right now in Europe and in Asia. And so there you meet that gap in supply and demand by going downhill per se in carbon. And so you start going back to coal, you go back to you know, fuel oils. And so the carbon intensity of those are double you know, in some cases. Um, and so that phenomena of uh, gaps in supply and demand being met with uh, higher carbon intensity is what I've called the carbon paradox. So what that means is when you think you're doing the right thing, adding renewables and going down the road, uh, if you're not mindful of reliability, you'll end up actually having the same carbon emissions or potentially even more carbon emissions than you would have expected. That can also be manifested in the following example, which is, you know, if something would have otherwise have been manufactured in Europe, but now because electricity is basically unaffordable and, uh, and that production moves to China, uh, you know, ch the Chinese grid is more than twice as carbon intensive as the European grid. And so every time that something that otherwise could have been manufactured in Europe gets moved to China, you've just doubled how much CO2 emissions come out of that product. And so this is where things like reliability and affordability are, are absolutely critical um, to get right, because if it, if it just turns out that Europe deindustrializes, and all that production moves to China, the, the total amount of emissions in the world will probably go up. So you've sort of explained what the carbon paradox is, but how does this then come back to CCS as this the concept of being the radical middle ground? Yeah, well, it's the reason it's a radical idea is because what it says is that today, I think there's this misguided and it's, it's basically 
I, I really believe it's incorrect that the that the solution to emissions is is to eliminate the use of fossil fuels. And I, I just don't think it's possible to do that anytime soon, if ever. And so carbon capture and storage is controversial because it requires people to essentially admit they will continue to use fossil fuels. And that by using fossil fuels, we can actually reduce emissions and solve solve some of the emissions problem, at least with the fossil fuels that are partnered with carbon capture. And for a lot of folks, that's, I think, a very difficult thing for them to say that they accept. Um, and so, you know, that's fine. We have a multi, you know, there doesn't have to just be one view on this particular issue. But I think where, um, so for us, uh, the, the sales pitch per se, as we think about it is, okay, well, what can we, what can we produce uh, from oil and gas and coal that are um, useful energy products? So electricity, hydrogen, you know, ammonia, methanol are all energy carriers where we can produce that, put the carbon dioxide into the ground. And when the consumer actually uses that energy, the emissions at the point of use are you know, eliminated. So with electric vehicles, uh, producing that electricity with carbon capture allows that electric vehicle then to, to produce the, uh, the transportation benefit without emissions. You know, hydrogen, uh, we can produce you know, the industrial heat, uh, you know, run fuel cells on trucks, uh, manufacture you know, renewable diesel, uh, we can make uh, you know a variety of aviation fuels with hydrogen, and so producing hydrogen at quantity uh, can be done with coal gasification and natural gas, um, and uh, and so and so on and so forth. Uh, and so these uh, these are the energy products uh, that we can produce in the here and now based on basically a readily available technologies. Um, and so I think that's incredibly exciting because uh, it's actually an answer. That uh, I, I, you know, we know how to do today, and we could scale up today with the right commercial uh, structures. When you look at sort of energy needs, energy requirements, what's your sense of what proportion is viable? You know, what's what's the right economic amount to attribute to renewables? Yeah, well, that's a good question. So the I suppose I come at it the following way, which is, if we had a sort of a carbon price across the entire economy. And we set that price at 100 bucks a ton, or you know, pick. That's probably about what the number should be, U.S. dollars. We don't have to answer that question from a central planning perspective. The market will just figure out what the optimal answer is to it, and then we can discuss: is that politically possible in the United States, for example? It probably isn't. So, what actually has been happening is you have these carrot-style uh, policies that creates incentives for wind and solar and batteries, and incentives for carbon capture. And so they're less efficient because, you know, basically you have to have some political process to arrive at these numbers and it, it's picking winners and losers. And, you know, no, no disrespect to the professors and the government people, but like picking winners and losers is really difficult to do. The market's the best way to do that. Um, but anyway, so that's how I started this. Uh, but we are where we are. So when you look at certain markets like California, like Texas, uh, both of those have achieved, you know, 23, 24, 25% market share of intermittent wind and solar. And both markets are experiencing stress on the grid. And so, you know, the, the, the requirement for either batteries uh, to, to uh, fulfill peak in, in California, the duck curve problem, uh, or in Texas, I mean, the, 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 the winter blast that took them out last winter, you know, the batteries definitely can play a role to to increase that market share further. Uh, but, but the evidence today is that once you've hit 23, 24% market share in those two case studies, 
uh, you, you're running into problems. Uh, in Europe, in the UK, I mean, basically the UK today is in quite a lot of trouble, to be honest. Like this winter, there's a decent chance that the UK in particular and the continent basically run out of natural gas before the winter concludes. And when you look at why that is in the UK, renewables, I may have this number a little bit off, but I think it achieved roughly a 40% market share. And so then you've got the balance is basically natural gas and the coal in the UK has essentially been removed. So in the last eight years, you know, 22 gigawatts of coal has been retired out of the United Kingdom's energy mix out of a 40 gigawatt electricity market. And so now you've got this situation where you got variable wind and the North Sea, for whatever reason, in August and September had terrible wind production. And so then the entire electrical system had to rely on natural gas. But there's only so much natural gas storage in the UK. And so like anything, if you've got a volatile rate and a certain amount of inventory, um, basically the inventories today are run down. And it, there's a possibility that, that the UK runs out of natural gas before the winter's over. So it's kind of a, what I'm trying to say there is that, you know, at 40% market share on renewables, um, that's one piece of that puzzle. But the other side of it is that now you've got the baseload natural gas system, but, but, that, but the storage, the amount of energy storage behind that natural gas system hasn't been expanded. And so as you've taken the coal out over an eight year period, which frankly is like a moment in, in time from, from an energy perspective, I mean, eight years is just like a flash in the pan, uh, there's, a, there's an incredible um, uh, additional volatility that's been added. And so, um, so each jurisdiction is going to be a little bit different, but the basic problem of volatility and storage to offset that volatility, um, that's, that's the fundamental problem uh, with uh, the, this, um, you know, how you, how you move off of uh, coal and, and, and add renewables. It's been a long known argument, hasn't it, for renewables that we need to solve the issue of long term storage and, and so forth. And then you have these old school fossil fuels and the opportunity of carbon capture. I guess I guess one of the challenges there is really around perception and the nature of the evidence at the moment for carbon capture. Right. Which is that the anxiety around it for some people, the anxiety is well, why should X, Y, Z sectors get to make money out of a problem they created? For others, the anxiety is more. Do we have the evidence that this kind of sequestration is really permanent is that it brings that kind of permanence to that storage that we need. I wondered what what are your thoughts on perhaps those those kind of questions around carbon capture at the moment? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's a, those are very good questions because I think my my view is in the coming years we're essentially in a five alarm energy crisis. So we're going to have if the United Kingdom runs out of natural gas in March, that anxiety around freezing and having like perilous uh, you know, danger, that, that's going to right, right the ship here a little bit, which is that I think there's a lot of perspective that energy is like somehow cares about how we feel about it. The energy system doesn't care how you feel about it. It just doesn't. So the physics of it, the chemistry of it, the, the thermodynamics of it are what they are. And there's no real way to sort of avoid those basic engineering problems. So I'd make that point. Um, the second point I'd make is that you know, at the end of the day, the permanence of storage of CO2 in the subsurface has essentially been proven out in North America. Uh, there is long, like multiple decades of this process uh, being shown to be effective. And, and so, you know, the way to just think about it in simple terms is the carbon was in the ground uh, in the form of fossil fuels. And so we're just putting the carbon back essentially where we got it from.
we, we talked before we came on air about the kind of productive tension around a whole range of decarbonisation tools for all sorts of reasons. But in, in the space of decarbonisation, you also have the, the added kind of perspective of those that see good and bad actors, don't you? And, and with good and bad actors comes the sense of uh, trust and perception, you know, not just evidence and data. So I think I think it's partly how do we, how does that get communicated to an audience that, that doesn't sit and read geological data, you know, or, or, yeah. or whatever else? Well, I think what's going to be interesting is just turning that around a little bit. And, you know, you may find this a little controversial, but I think that the the, the renewables industry and, and renewables proponents will actually have some some tough questions to answer as the energy crisis in Europe basically degenerates. Um, so there, I think there is going to be some tough questions as to like, well, you know, why is this happening? Like, why is natural gas $30 as a BTU? Why are we having fertilizer shortages? Like, what is going on here? And I, I really believe that there's been a, a incorrect um, emphasis or an insufficient emphasis on reliability and energy security. And so I, I, I guess I would just turn that around a little bit, which is I actually think there's a lot of heat coming to the, the basic uh, discussion that's happening right now by the general public as they open their you know, heating bills and electricity bills, and, and rightly so. And so I think that we will be forced to answer some of the questions around the acceptability of carbon capture more in, the, um, uh, in sort of a crisis environment. And I think that, and that's fine, you know, that, that's fine if, if, it, if, if, if folks who are quote unquote on the other side of this debate uh, are, are reluctant, accept, like, reluctantly accept carbon capture and they're just like, well, there's, we have to do it because it just, it's, it's just, you know, reluctantly we have to do this. No, I can live with that, I, you know, it's fine. Uh, but I do think that, it, you know, the basic framework here is one where uh, we will, we've experienced a decade, you know, if not more, um, of, an, of a time of energy abundance, of a time of real energy affordability and energy security. And, and that's 180 degrees the other direction today and over the coming years. Because one of the things that's happened is, you know, pension funds, endowment funds, institutional investors will not invest in oil and gas production. Just as a matter of policy, uh, many of the European pension funds are basically will not touch oil and gas investment. And so what we have a, an energy supply problem that's a very serious global problem that's underway essentially as we speak, which is that even though the prices of coal and natural gas and oil are going up, there is no additional supply projects coming online or being proposed uh, or even in design. So, you know, we're, we're, we're going to have this trouble where we're going to have to make some, some tougher decisions around how does energy supply get increased? What is a sustainable way for that to actually happen? And, and to be honest, groups like oil and gas companies and others, you know, they're going to have to hear that, that the product is an acceptable product. Otherwise, like no one's going to invest in more production. And so what, one of the other things that we're seeing today as well that's related to this is that, you know, as coal prices go up, uh, monosilicon and polysilicon prices are going up. So the, the basic building blocks for solar panels are getting expensive like really quickly uh, because uh, solar panels are made out of coal. Uh, you know, wind turbines are heavily uh, materials intensive. So as steel prices go up, wind turbines are going up. Uh, lithium prices are skyrocketing. Uh, copper prices are skyrocketing. You need a lot of diesel, a lot of electricity to process minerals. 
Uh, so as energy costs go up, those minerals are more expensive, which makes the batteries go up. So this whole idea of that higher oil and gas prices will create a substitution towards renewables, I don't think that's correct. Uh, the, the thermodynamics of it are, are say that that's not correct. And we're going to live that here where everything's going to be more expensive. And so we're going to have to figure out like, okay, how do we get the most bang for our buck, both in terms of energy supply and the most carbon efficient way of creating that energy supply. And so those are going to be a little more nuanced and sophisticated arguments than um, perhaps the, the, the last decade's set of arguments. So CCS is one particular tool, one particular answer to that. What's the kind of capability that you think is needed? And I guess we'll look particularly at the North American market, because the thing about, as we all know, the thing about the European market is that we're much more focused, have to be much more focused on offshore, partly due to land use and heaven knows what else. But tell us about North America. What's what's the kind of capability that's needed there? So from a you know the perspective of uh, storage capability, the subsurface uh, has an incredible uh, ability to store carbon dioxide in the subsurface. And that can be done in two basic ways. Uh, the first is what we call geologic storage. So that's where CO2 is injected in a fluid phase. Uh, so you compress CO2, uh, it'll turn into a, basically a fluid. And then that can be in, uh, uh, pumped down into the ground. Uh, let's say 1200 meters, 2000 meters, you know, 2500 meters deep into uh, formations that we call saline formations. So that's uh, brine water. Uh, you can't drink it. It's uh, radioactive. It's you know, it's, it's got lots of uh, you know parts per million of heavy metals and stuff like that. So it's, it's two kilometers in the ground. You inject it into the ground, and that CO two um, is a um, it becomes it dissolves into some of that water. It binds with those minerals. It it, it basically stays there permanently. Um, so that that basic approach, uh, there is an opportunity to put you know, thousands of gigatons of CO2 into the ground uh, in North America. Uh, the second approach is in depleted oil and natural gas formations. And that's where um, I think there's a, an incredible opportunity as well. So uh, the natural gas fields uh, that we deplete and then produce off that gas, you know, we know those are contained um, structures. We know they're, uh, the, the natural gas was, was, was stayed there for millions of years. Uh, so we know it's it's a good tank per se, and and so you know we can uh, the pore space that's um, available to that that the, the, uh, it had natural gas in it that natural gas has been removed, and so there's an opportunity to refill those storage caverns basically uh, with uh, carbon dioxide, and so that uh, uh, that's a that's what the, the North Sea is likely to do as well uh, is put that back into those depleted gas fields. And so there's a, an incredible uh, uh, storage capability uh, there as well. So the, basically the subsurface is not the governing problem at all. Uh, the, the challenges with carbon capture are uh, the capture equipment uh, is big industrial energy intensive uh, equipment. So the gas separation work um, is just a, you know, it's not up for discussion. There's a thermodynamic uh, set of of uh, energy that's needed to separate CO2 from the exhaust gas from a combustion process. Um, and so that's that requires large pieces of equipment to do that. Uh, that costs money um, and it costs energy. So it, it's, uh, it, it, it doesn't come for free uh, and you can't uh, just sort of imagine these problems away. Um, so, but, but in any case, additional, uh, you know, like any industrial process, once we actually start working on this stuff, 
and ramping it up, scaling it up, you know, cost will come down and we'll get better at it. Um, and then the, the sort of the bigger problem, the one that's not really, uh, really easy to solve is to the extent that CO2 has to be transported from where it's captured to where you're sequestering it, you know, building pipelines and moving CO2, you know, that's just a, a challenging proposition because it's just expensive um, to do that. You know, and folks like the Sierra Club and others, if they take the position to challenge that, then, you know, those folks are directly responsible for then those emissions happening when they otherwise could have been avoided. So I just want to be precise that the environmental groups that are attacking carbon capture, you know, they're basically part of the problem because there is no perfect solution to any of this stuff. And, you know, we, it, the CO2 conference I was at in Texas, I mean, we, we get, one of the presenters was a, you know, a environmental lawyer, and she was just going through all these various activist groups that are starting to ramp up funding to start attacking carbon capture and, and attacking it from a, an administrative law perspective, a regulatory perspective. And so, you know, you run into this uh, situation and it's one of the things we write about a lot, which is that there is no perfect solution to energy and emissions. The solutions that we have that we, we can actually execute on today, uh, I mean, we just have to do those. Uh, there's an urgency to this because, you know, CO2 accumulation in the atmosphere is like compound interest. Like, you know, if we don't work on it today, like if you don't start saving today and you're like, I'm just gonna start saving when I'm 60, you, you lose that time period that you otherwise could have worked on this. And so because it's an accumulative problem, it's actually incredibly important for carbon capture to happen today to allow technology progress to continue on. So things like small reactors and improvements in batteries, like those things are going to take decades before they really can move the needle on emissions. And we've got a 8 billion people growing to 9 billion people in the coming decades. So total energy demand is only growing. So my concern is that in a decade, we'll be sitting here at 45 billion tons or 47 billion tons in a decade. And then when I'm you know, 20 years older, we'll be at closer to 55 or 60 billion tons. Like that's the problem we have to actually address, which is that emissions are actually growing. And so anything we can do that's like proven, that's viable today, we just need to do it. And I'm particularly concerned to hear that there's certain groups that are ready to fight on CCS and it's, it's terrible. Now, I don't think I know any, any industrial client who is only looking at one thing anyway. You know, it's not like this, no one's saying CCUS or any of those technologies is the single answer. Everybody is having to look at a serious portfolio ranging from renewables through to this, but also looking at different processes that actually kind of prevent the emission to begin with. You know, this is all going on as a kind of quite a rich layered tapestry, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. And where, but where I do find though, there you when you start getting to the root philosophies of certain groups and certain ideas, it, it's around this idea that the, the answer is eliminating fossil fuels versus living with fossil fuels. And that's our perspective is that when, you know, on our website, our, our first thing when you come right onto the website is what we're saying is investing across the carbon life cycle. So we, we don't, you know, we just sort of view carbon, uh, the molecule of uh, carbon dioxide is, is, you know, no different than you're exhaling carbon dioxide right now. You're the lunch you, you had today, your metabolic process and how your furnace works. Those aren't that substantially different. And so this idea that we we want to we, we that we, we that there's no way to live with 
uh, CO2. That, I don't believe in that. that. That's not how the earth works. In my view, it, it will just, it's just not how the earth works. The carbon cycle on the earth, uh, there's a natural process that we, we just sort of live with. And so anyways, I guess what I'm trying to say there is that when, I, when you peel the onion layers back, oftentimes there are those who just have a hardcore view that eliminating fossil fuels is the mission versus perhaps a more of a practical portfolio approach where you're saying, look, we need to target the, the GHG emissions. How can we do that and still maintain our industrial system? How do we maintain our lifestyles? How, how, do, how, do, how does the 3 billion people that basically have no access to energy in the world, how do they get some energy? How are they gonna do that? You know, and I think those are, that's a richer conversation. It's a more nuanced conversation. Um, and it's one that sometimes is lost, I, I, I think, in, in a bit of the rhetoric that, that makes it a very binary choice. And I, I just don't believe it is. Actually, I, I'm kind of going just mindful of something you said before we hit, well, before I hit record, which was also about the need for um, different solutions, different tools, different roadmaps because of where people are situated, where industry is situated, the kind of actual geology and geography of our you know, different environments. You, you articulated that really well, and I deeply wish that I'd already had recording going on. So I wonder, if, can you just revisit that? And then, then, we'll, then we'll sort of talk a little more about the market model before we wrap. But I think it's an interesting point. Yeah, I mean, what, what you know, I think, you know, I, lived, I had a chance to live in California in Silicon Valley, and, you know, there's no winter there. They don't get snow, like in the Canadian prairies, it could be minus 30 degrees Celsius. And so, you know, the things that I worry about in the wintertime are, are the reliability of natural gas. And you know, even when you go on a road trip somewhere, you got to make sure your, the tr your, your vehicle is full of, of fuel. Because if you hit the ditch when it's 30 below, you, you're going to need to have the vehicle running to wait until someone can bail you out of that problem. And so being sort of attuned to cold uh, versus, say, in California, you know, when I was down there, I, I really was for the first time sort of afraid of the heat. You know, they got fire, uh, they get they get all sorts of problems with heat down there. And so they they have a different set of just sensitivities to weather. But then their energy mix is also can be attuned to that. So no one dies in California by freezing to death. It just you basically can't do it um, because it just doesn't get cold enough, generally speaking. And so, you know, things like intermittency and in, in, around their energy system isn't as life threatening as it would be in somewhere like Alberta. And so that's just sort of a philosophical perspective, but you know, California has a different set of resources. They've got incredible solar resources. They've got incredible wind resources. They've got um, you know, a network of, of, of an ability to build networks of electrical systems because of the density of the populations. And so the solutions that make sense in California uh, may, may be applicable generally to other jurisdictions, but there may be solutions that are created in other jurisdictions like Texas or Wyoming or Alberta that fit our circumstances in those jurisdictions. And carbon capture is probably one example of that, where you need to have sedimentary basins and you, know, you need somewhere to put the CO2. And so when you sort of zoom out and sort of ask your questions, well, what is like China going to do? You know, what is India going to do? Because if we don't have solutions that will work for those countries, uh, basically there's no way to solve the 40 billion ton a year problem uh, because the energy loads and the emissions from the developing world will are probably already greater than the developed world and are gonna continue to grow. So as we sort of think about these sort of solutions, it's like, you know, in, in China, the, they are natively rich in coal. And so are they going to just stop using coal? There's no way they're going to stop using coal in this decade or in the coming decades. And so what are the solutions that are available for coal 
that allow them to continue to use coal, but not dump the CO2 in the atmosphere. Now that's also the case for India. What, what are the ways that India can use their natural resources, which are coal-based, and uh, not emit? Uh, and so carbon capture, I think, can play a very important role in Asia uh, in particular uh, to solve problems. And, and that also applies in South America. So Brazil is a great example. So Brazil has an incredible quantity of, of biofuels. You know, they take their sugar uh, cane production and they turn that into ethanol. And their liquid fuel system in Brazil runs like heavily on ethanol. But of course, when you make ethanol, it's a basically a CO2, it's a pretty CO2 intensive process. And so again, carbon capture could play a, a meaningful role in Brazil in being able to reduce their emissions and, and continue to have their liquid fuel system be you know, operative and, and continue to grow. And so th those are some of the uh, you know, examples that just come to mind of you know, different solutions that make sense in, in certain jurisdictions. I know we have a couple of clients, including Carbon Clean, who talk about uh, CCUS as a service. If we if we sort of look at that and then look at what really what's needed next in general, how, what, what would you say there? Yeah, so, be, you know, the, the business model uh, of an emitter and uh, sequestration, you know, there needs to be some sort of capture process. Uh, there's a variety of solutions for those. Um, and so, you know, if you're in the, in, in, depending on the circumstance or the company that you're in, there's a, there's a lot of interest in specific solutions. So if you're in the cement business, you know, how, how are you going to solve cement um, with carbon capture? Of course, when, you, when we make cement, it's very CO2 intensive. Cement 7% of CO2 emissions. Uh, steel production. Now what are, how do you create the heat uh, in order to uh, turn that ore into steel? I mean, it's incredibly energy intensive. And so, you know, I, I think the, the message here is that there will be um, sort of emission capture solutions. There will also be substitutions to using more electricity, using more hydrogen. And so then the question is, well, where are you going to get those uh, electrons and those hydrogens? And what's the process to create that energy carrier so that that steel plant is able to use uh, either of those choices? And so th that's how you really need to, I think, think about it is that there are, you know, the, the, there's call it these uh, point source uh, capture solutions, and then there's the energy carrier solutions. And, and so each are a little bit different, um, but, it, but it, what it speaks to is just how broadly applicable this you know, basic concept of carbon capture can be. In the round, then, when we sort of think about what's needed next for CCUS to be able to start playing its part at scale, I mean, I'm hearing you say from earlier in the conversation, it's a lot about solving that transport issue. What else would you, what's your call to action if you think about whether it's policy influences or makers, whether it's industrials that might be a, you know, a service user or other investors, what, what is it that you want, like the call to action for those people to consider? Yeah, I mean, basically, the, so the transportation thing, it, it, it doesn't have to be a problem. Uh, there are many places where the sequestration can happen co-located with the emitter. So it just I just want to put that out there. It's not necessarily the case that you need to have pipelines, uh, but sometimes you do. The biggest driver to carbon capture is price and value on carbon. And so as an investor, as a fiduciary, and I'm looking at a billion dollar piece of equipment, you know, I have to be able to underwrite that and have very clear, specific uh, cash flows. So in the United States, the section 45Q uh, tax credit, you know, pays $50 a ton for geologic storage. And so then it's over 12 years. So I know that over, if I were to do a million ton a year project, then I, I know it's $50 million a year for 12 years. 
you know, $600 million is, is sort of the, the number. So then I could figure out and say, okay, well, if I'm going to try to hook up um, on a hydrogen plant, a, a carbon capture unit, like retrofit an existing hydrogen plant, you know, can I do that for less than $600 million? If I can't, then I, it's just uneconomic. I'm, I'm not going to do it. I will not be able to get the money to be able to do that because the person who signs off on the loan or the equity investment is also a fiduciary and the law holds them to have to see how the map actually works. And so the basic, uh, and that's where the reconciliation bill in Congress uh, right now is, 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 a, is a very powerful thing. So um, it's uh, currently on the books to move up to um, $85 a ton and to have that be a, a, like a refundable tax credit from the IRS. So the IRS would essentially you know, send you a check for the $85. Um, and so, so coming back to our example, that same million ton a year project is now over a billion dollars of economic value uh, from the, the government, the United States government in the form of cash. And so now I can look at it and say, okay, well, that, that hydrogen plant, you know, it was, it needed about $700 million to make it all go around. You know, now there's a billion dollars of incentive. Okay, let's proceed with the project. And uh, because it's economic, it's in the money. There, there's more economic value than the cost and the capital will just naturally flow. I mean, that's, uh, that's the magic of capitalism. If you show a return to the market, uh, the market will quickly figure it out and, and, and do the engineering and the permitting and, and build this stuff. And so that's just first and foremost, is that a value on avoided emissions, a value on uh, a price on carbon is, is the key piece of it. And you know, we're moving towards that uh, globally in the developed world. Um, and I, I, I think that's exactly how we should be thinking about it, um, is rewarding people who are solving the problem. And, um, and so I'm very encouraged that, that the conversation is going towards carbon pricing. Great. Well, Craig, I'm really appreciative of your time today. Um, you know, I think it's so important for a company like ours, you know, yes, we focus on decarbonization all the time. And it's very easy for those conversations to sort of start leaning one way. And I think having like the full range of data views, it all feeds this, you know, what we were talking about earlier, this kind of the healthy tension, the healthy discussions that actually round out better solutions as, the, as we move forward. So really, really appreciate your expertise and time. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you. And I, 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 will, I would want to end on just one point, which is that for me, some of the most satisfying conversations have been with folks that are you know, deeply committed to environmental uh, solutions and are struggling and really wrestling with sustainability problems uh, because we actually are sharing you know a commonality as to okay how do we solve the problem of emissions what, what are ways that, that the industry can contribute to that and that, anyways that's where i found the most uh, the richest and most rewarding relationships and conversations so i very much appreciated having the opportunity to be here and, and talk about this today great thank you and we're coming to the end of the year so happy holidays too you, you as well. thank you alex many thanks for listening to the decarb connect podcast we work with clients across the industrial sectors, specifically those who are tasked with decarbonizing the most energy intensive products and materials that we use every day. If you have an interest in uh, learning more about either our members network, our reports or our event series, do get in touch with us at decarbconnect.com. Or if you'd like to take part in the podcast, email me, alex at ac at decarbconnect.com. Thanks for listening.